Hey everyone, welcome to the 47th episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Today's guest is Paul Anacone. Paul reached career-high rankings of 12th in the world in singles and 3 in the world in doubles on the ATP Tour. He's gone on to coach some of the best players in the history of the game, including Pete Sampras, Roger Federer, Tim Henman, Sloane Stevens, and he currently is working with Taylor Fritz. On today's episode, we discuss the mindset of Roger Federer, swinging aggressively to conservative targets, and some great tips for coming to the net and succeeding at doubles. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Coach Anacone, welcome to the pod. Thank you for having me. Appreciate the invitation. Amazing that you made time for us. We know you're busy, especially in the summer. Uh, many people out there listening will know you as a world-class coach who has worked with some of the best players in the history of the game. Roger Federer, Pete Sampras, Tim Henman, Taylor Fritz, several others. But some of them may not know that you were also a fantastic player and reached a career high, top 12 in the world on the ATP Tour. You were very famous for coming to the net, serving and volleying, chipping and charging, I want to start out and just kind of know, why did you gravitate towards that style of play when you were getting going and, and to make you such a successful player? Well, I think the biggest thing is that I came along in a time where oversized rackets just started. So I, I played most of my junior career with smaller uh, old school rackets, so to speak. And the only way I could start to learn to use the oversized racket more effectively was to come to net. And so I started coming net a lot more in college and it became really successful in doubles. And so I started doing it in singles and it felt comfortable. You know, it felt comfortable for me to play that style. And I think as I've gone through the different stages of my career, looking back, one of the things that I can say unequivocally is that the most effective tennis players I've found are the ones that know their identity and how they need to play. And and so I, I would say that's what I had to do for me to be semi-successful and so I gravitated towards that so in hindsight you know I give my, a lot of credit to my brother who coached me and also Nick Volatari and, and coach Mike DePalmer Sr. for kind of helping me understand what I needed to do kind of what my identity was and how I was going to give myself the best chance to be successful. We see pros occasionally mixing in serve and volley now as a change-up is the serve and volley a legitimate mix-up that amateurs could use as well? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think people have gone so far the other direction that they've forgotten that um, it actually is effective. People are so good at every level of playing lateral tennis. And I think that that's happened at the club level as well. As well. Um, the good club players are really good at lateral tennis now. And I think people have shied away from coming to the net because the lateral game has gotten so good at all the different levels in tennis but I think if you look at the best players, the best way to create imbalance or opportunity is to create a north-south component, whether you're coming forward and putting pressure or bringing them forward. And I think it works at every level. It does. Everything is relative to the people you play against. I think that's, you know, you see that in 20-year-old Carlos Alcaraz, who actually, you know, can come forward some. He serves in volleys. He drops shots and brings his opponent in. So, I think it's a really key ingredient. The biggest challenge for people to learn, especially at the club level, is when to use it. And, and obviously you want to use it sparingly, but in, in a time where it makes the most sense and you want to be the correct shot selection. 
for someone listening out there, could you help them with what would a situation be where that would make sense? What would be a good opportunity? Well, you know, I would, first of all, I'd urge all of the club players to talk to their club professionals. Most of them are really underutilized and are very good strategically. Um, staying away from technique because that varies. I mean, I would just say, again, you've set a tone when you're serving and staying back using a serve plus one, right? You're going to hit a serve and then get aggressive on your first shot. So you set that tone up first and then you watch for opportunities as you're looking your oppo- at your opponent where they're more vulnerable. For instance, they always chip their backhand return. So if they always hit a chip a backhand return, that's a good side to serve and volley against, particularly if you haven't done it because there's probably a greater tendency that the ball is going to float. Um, so I think themes like that give you little tidbits of information to pick and choose when your best opportunity presents itself. Is there, you mentioned technique is variable, which is so true. And all the listeners out there probably have different grips and, and different volley strokes. Is there anything with footwork or in terms of where you'd want to place a first volley, generally speaking, that might help them? Well, I think people, a couple things. I think people overthink things these days because players return so well and pass so well. So it's very easy to think yourself into basically paralysis, right? So I I like to keep themes relatively simple. The higher the ball is, the more aggressive you hit the volley. And aggression isn't just by pace. Aggression can be location. So in order to keep things simplistic, think about hitting to the open court And if it's above your waist, just make a mental note to try to do a good job really having a nice stick on the volley so it skids through the court. So keep themes simple, volley to the open court, and then make sure you follow the direction of the ball. Wherever you volley, that's the direction you want to move, and that'll help you cut the angle off if it comes back for a second volley. That's great advice. When you were playing, you know, obviously after your first serve, you probably found it easy to come in and maybe on a second serve return, you could chip and charge or put some pressure. But there were definitely some points where you were going to have to stay back and win from the baseline or at least hold your own. Are there any baseline philosophies or principles that you think help people be more consistent and win more of those lateral baseline exchanges? I I think, again, big targets. I I like the idea of high margin for error. If you're not great at the back of the court, you know, your your concentrated targets need to be deep, not necessarily pace. You know, see if you can get consistently good at giving yourself high margin over the net so that you create a big target to hit to and a much higher likelihood that you're going to be successful. And the deeper you hit the ball, the more likely you are to be able to come inside the baseline. And then as soon as you get inside the baseline, that's your go zone, right? That's the area where you can create a lot of power. You can either go for a big ground stroke winner or hit it and come forward. But the idea is first is depth and high margin for error. And second is get the good core position after executing part A. One one battle I have with players here and, and players online that message is the height over the net on these ground strokes. And obviously you're around these top players. I'm just curious how high, you know, a Taylor or a Roger, how high over the net are they aiming on just a standard neutral baseline shot? Well, that does. I mean, obviously it's going to change depending for the pros. It's actually a lot different because of the speed and the RPM is going to be greater. Right. I mean, you see somebody like Taylor that's, you know, can hit upwards, average upwards in the high 70s, low 80s on his forehand, but also creates a lot of racket head speed because of his extreme grip. So, you know, his rally ball is probably, 
I would say it's probably going to be, you know, 24 to 36 inches above the net on the, on the forehand, his backhand's flatter. So it's going to be lower over the net, but the stroke is so good. Um, and his technique is so solid that he very rarely misses the ball. The only time he generally gets in trouble is actually, um, this is ironic enough, but club players can learn this too, is when he gets away from being offensive. Um, one of the biggest tricks of the trade is most people think, okay, my opponent's missing a lot, so now i got to make sure I don't miss. And as soon as you say, I don't miss, guess what happens? You miss. So the idea is to alleviate that, is to continue doing what you're doing, but just get that bigger target, a bigger target cross court with a higher elevation over the net. And again, everybody has their own comfort zone. Look at your speed of shot and look at where you're comfortable hitting the ball and you can kind of tweak it as you go along. Would you say, like generally speaking, it's it's swinging aggressively to those big targets so you don't feel tentative? Yeah, one of my biggest kind of cliches that I often say is aggressive shots to conservative locations and especially under pressure, you know, and even the pros, I say the same thing to Taylor and he gets nervous just like everyone does. And, and, you know, I, I always try to tell him, you know, be really clear about making sure you're still swinging aggressively, but just go to a big spot on the court. Um, Michael Russell's been with Taylor for a couple of years and coaches him and does all the heavy lifting day in and day out and does an amazing job. And, He's, he's a great tennis mind about understanding how to do this and do it with safety. So, you know, Michael's constantly telling Taylor, make sure that you're still aggressive. Don't just try to make it, hit it aggressively, but just give yourself a big spot to go to. I'd like to switch gears just a little bit. You were also an incredible doubles player. You got to top three in the world in doubles. And, you know, there's lots of different styles, lots of different formations, but is there any common basic fundamental or principle that you think leads to solid, consistent doubles play? I think the biggest theme is good communication with your partner because a lot of different styles and doubles are successful these days, but you have to have good communication with your partner. That way you can support each other and you really know how to cover each other's liabilities. And then if you do that, then that's the first thing, right? Is the communication with your partner and within that, it's understanding each other's game style and what you do well and what your partner doesn't do well. I wasn't a great returner of serve, but I was a really good server. So my partner that I played with most of my career, Christo Van Rensburg, was a really good returner of serve. So he helped with my inconsistency on return. He didn't serve great, so I moved well at the net and moved a lot. So I tended to help his serve. So you have to figure out how... You work together to help each other shore up each uh, each of your uh, liabilities, so to speak. Is there any formation or any style that you would not recommend? So, for example, one thing I get a lot on Instagram is people saying, well, my partner's serve is so bad. And so I feel like I'm a sitting duck up there. And a lot of times I've suggested, well, why not just stand on the baseline then? I mean, if you're getting pounded at the net... Yeah, I mean, a yeah, I mean, a club level, I mean, a club level, even a professional level these days, the doubles game has changed so much. It does, it, you know, if you're playing a team that also is not great at the net, then there's no reason you can't do that. To me, it's illogical. You know, it doesn't make sense to me logically, um, but I can see the practicality of it. As long as when you're at the baseline, you're both still offensive and you're trying to figure out ways how do you finish from back there to make your opponents uncomfortable? So I, I don't sneeze at um, 
any tactics or strategy these days because so many things seem to work and things that are atypical in terms of what you would expect can be really good strategies and also be really successful. So you just kind of have to make sure you're on your toes thinking about it, but no reason that you can't try it. I grew up with uh, Stan Smith and Hilton Head for a couple of years. And one thing he used to always stress was you never change a winning game plan and you always change a losing game plan. And so if you're doing something and it works, like he was just, hey, even if he doesn't understand it, he said, just roll with it until it stops. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of people, you know, a, a lot of people tend to think too much. You know, Taylor's Fritz is, a, is an example of someone that's very cerebral. He likes to think about lots of different possibilities. And I think there are times where he maybe overcomplicates it for himself instead of sticking with the definition of who he is as a player and saying, OK, if I do this and I do it well, kind of doesn't matter what the other guy does. And, and if I don't do it well, then I've got to figure things out and I've got to f- figure out how to tweak it. But the idea of being able to change something that isn't successful sounds great in theory, but the one key element you have to have is the ability to think through pragmatically when you're having uh, a downtime on the court, which is really difficult to do. Most players, club and professional, have emotional reactions to what's going on. And emotion can cloud your lens as to figure out what to do. I think emotion's really good in sports. I think it's really good in life as long as that's not the guiding force to you making decisions about what you do next. Because that emotion can be very perilous if you're not careful. It's fine to feel it, but then how do you take a couple of deep breaths, get back to the pragmatism and the evaluation of how you problem solve in the moment. And some of the greatest players in the world, that's what they do so well. You know, their level, you know, Pete Sampras back in the day, one of the things that he actually taught me early on as a very young player, and I was a very young coach, he was like, it's, you know, the games, when I play well, it's not, it's easy. I don't really worry about things because I'm not going to lose. You know, it sounds arrogant, but it's not arrogant if it's true. And it's just, to me, he's saying that. He said, but I think actually the biggest thing I have to really remember is when I don't play well, if I'm thinking on my toes, I'm still going to win most of my matches. So I can't get hung up if I'm not playing great because I can still find ways to win. The only way he can do that is if he's not getting emotional about what's going on on the court. And that's really hard to do for every player. But I think the great players really understand that because they know how good they are, but they also know that their biggest asset is the fact that if they're not at the top of their game, they're so darn good that they're probably going to find ways to create opportunities to win anyway. That's all. I, I love that about the emotion and it can't be the guiding guiding force. And I also think, I mean, maybe you can understand this, but the difference between hitting well and playing well. 100%. There's a lot of people that are great drillers and hit the ball unbelievably well. But then what happens, you know, when the lights come on, so to speak? How do you change that and turn that into a great player? And and there's a big difference between hitting the ball and playing tennis. And And every level players have a hard time. You know, there's a lot of times where, you know, you still I'm still reminding Taylor that, you know, it's practice. It's it's practice. It's it's whether you're playing great or not playing great. Either of those themes shouldn't change your belief about yourself. You know, you're top 10 in the world for a reason. You know, three missed forehands out of the last 47 shouldn't really matter. And, and you know, 45 great ones doesn't mean you just cured cancer either. So you, you have to keep things in perspective and be very pragmatic and thoughtful about what you're doing. That doesn't mean don't be passionate. That doesn't mean don't be positive. It just means 
be thoughtful. And, and I think that it's hard because it's a little antithetical to what you're trying to do, right? Because you want to have joy when you're playing. So it's really difficult to then when you do something really well to measure it, have a measured reaction to it. Because if you don't, then what happens? You get overconfident. And if you miss a few shots and you don't have a measured reaction, then what happens? Then you think you can't play at all. So there's a there's an art to that. And it takes a while to figure out your comfort level. But it happens at every level of the game, whether you're out on tour or you're playing a 3.5 match at the club. It's the same theme. It's just at a different level. You're always on Tennis Channel giving excellent analysis like what you just gave us there. When amateurs are at home watching, you know, the U.S. Open is coming up. When they're watching professional tennis, what are some things they should look for that they can help them with their own games? I, one of the things I would I would urge them to do is see if you can teach yourself. And what I mean by that is, as you watch a match, don't just look at winners and miss balls. Look at whether or not the players are making correct shot selection decisions. Was that the right shot to choose at that moment? You know, and and when you can start to analyze a match and you can see that the shot that was selected was missed, yeah, but it was the wrong shot. And the reason it was wrong is because, for instance, if you're four feet outside the double sideline and eight feet behind the back, uh, behind the baseline, you shouldn't hit a flat two-hander 300 miles an hour over the high part of the net. Just doesn't make sense. So if you can start to evaluate that and then evaluate the stuff that's going well, watch how well Novak Djokovic consistently hits his returns deep and watch where they go. He hits most of his returns deep up the middle of the court. Why would you hit it to the guy or your opponent in the middle of the court? Well, because if you hit it deep up the middle of the court and it gets on them quickly, they have to back up and they tend to have to lift the ball. So when they lift the ball and it comes back up the middle, what does Novak get to do? He gets to decide what the pattern of the rally is going to be. He either goes strong down the line or cross court and leaves you guessing. Whereas if he hits it to a corner and doesn't hit it just right, Right away, he's in the middle of a tug-of-war or a tic-tac-toe game where it becomes about angles. This way, if you go hard up the middle, then you get to decide what's happening. And no one serves in volleys anymore, so you don't have to worry about that. We're going to finish up with a few Instagram questions. These were sent to you by followers. Uh, the first one you already answered, so I'm going to skip over it. was referencing Pete, but this other person wanted to know what you specifically learned in your time from coaching Roger Federer. I, you know, one of the reasons why I like coaching so much is I think I've learned from everyone I've coached and, and I learned a bunch from Roger. I've learned a ton from Taylor and I started working with Taylor when he was 20 and he was a kid and I've learned a ton from him about thought processes, about things that he does, why he does them, how that could impact other players. Um, I learned a bunch from Sloan Stevens, Tim Henman, and you mentioned Roger. One of the things I've learned about Roger is how important it is to be able to let go of things you can't control and how important it is to be able to really stay in the moment and to be content with trying to execute your game plan, even if it's not successful. And what I mean by that is he's one of the best people that I've ever seen at not sweating the small stuff and not sweating things that he can't control. I mean, I sat in his box in 2010 and 11, successive years where he had match points at the U.S. Open and lost both matches to Novak. And 
I left the second year just kind of, I couldn't, like, it was hard for me to even, I wasn't, I felt terrible for him, but it was hard for me to even comprehend it. And I remember talking to him afterwards because he was in a great mood. And this was a couple hours later, he was playing with his kids. And I asked him about it. And he said, look, he said, yeah, it's, it's really crushing. He said, but I can also give you 10 matches that I had no right winning that I've won. And, and so at the end of the day, sure, this is high profile because it's the semifinals, but you, I can also list all the other ones where I had no chance. And sure enough, the next year at Wimbledon, when he won in 2012, he really, in my opinion, shouldn't have won that tournament. The beginning of the tournament, his back went out and he really struggled for two matches. One of the matches he ended up winning in five sets, I believe against Julian Benito from France and he could hardly walk and and he got through that match and it gradually got better but he wasn't really able to practice much and all during that time he didn't sweat it it was it just was it was just there there was nothing he could do about it he had a great physio they're doing everything they can do he's trying to rest and he wasn't going to waste 20 hours a day worrying about it and sure enough he ended up getting well enough to get to the semis where he beat uh, Novak and then he got to the finals and he beat Andy Murray. And eight days later, I'm scratching my head going, how's this guy even going to play the next round? So he gave, he, he really has a lot of proof about why that attitude of, you know, control what you can control, work your best and your smartest to give yourself the best options. And then when it's over and there's things that you can't control, Learn, take a few notes, pragmatic notes, and then move on. And it's hard to do. One of your jobs as a coach is to scout upcoming opponents for your players. How do you do that? What do you look for when you're evaluating an opponent? You know, I I tend to look at strengths and weaknesses. I look at some metrics. Um, I like to shy away from metrics um, and analytics because... A lot of them are misleading, and I think too many people rely on numbers without facts. And let me give you an example of that. Um, okay, Pete Sampras is playing at the Australian Open, and this is a fact. This happened, and I was trying to convince him to chip and charge and come in behind second serves because he was a great athlete. He didn't like to do that. And so one of the matches he played in in this match, he chipped and charged like four times the first set and lost all four of those points. And he ended up winning the set in a tie break and then he won the match. And after the match, I said to him, that's a hell of an effort. Great match. So glad you chipped and charged those four times in the first set. And he said, yeah, but I lost all four of those points. And I said, yeah, but why did you get two double faults in the tiebreaker? How does that show up in analytics? It just shows up as two double faults. And it shows up that he was 0 for 4 chipping and charging, right? So there's a cause and effect to what you're doing that the numbers don't always play out. So unless you're really watching the dynamics of what's going on in the court, you don't understand potentially exactly what the numbers mean. And so a lot of times I'll watch someone playing Novak and it's they've got 47 unforced errors. And I'm like, no, they don't. They really have 26 because the others are because when you play Novak, your target goes from three feet to 18 inches. So you have to hit 18 inches instead of three feet. And if you don't, you're going to lose the point anyway. 
So those are forced errors, right? So in other words, I, I, I shy a little bit away from the analytics. So what I try to do is look at styles of play. And then I look at my person that I'm helping and I'm going, okay, how do their strengths plug into the opponent's weaknesses? What do I do to exploit those weaknesses from a position of comfort with my player's strengths? That's how I look at it. I don't just go, oh, Joe Blow's got a, he's got a great, uh, or, or, or he's got a great two-hander. So I've got to, you know, Taylor's got to hit a lot of slice backhands to his two-hander. Taylor doesn't like to use a slice backhand, so it doesn't make any sense for Taylor to do that. So what else can Taylor do to, to plug into what the other player doesn't do so well? So that's kind of how I match up the player versus my player. I take in consideration serving percentages. I take into consideration how good their second serves are, what their weapon is. But I don't just rely on the analytics of it because I think it can be very misleading. Um, and also at the pro level, I mean, Taylor will ask me, where does he like to serve? And I'll be like, okay, the guy's ranked 28 in the world. If he can't hit all of his spots, then that's a problem. So I'm not going to tell you, you know, on big points, he only goes one direction because I've gotten burned doing that. I've gotten burned telling Pete Sampras about someone that went one direction, one match, and then the next match he went to play him. And the guy hit every big, every big point serve to the exact opposite side. And I apologized to Pete afterwards. And he said, for what are you apologizing for? And I said, I gave you the wrong advice. He's like, Paul, guys, you know, 12 in the world. If he can't change directions on where he serves, that's a problem. So you have to be able to think on your feet when you're on the court too. That's why the whole coaching thing is challenging. But I also think that's why it's also an opportunity now for the players on the court to really listen to their coaches at the pro level because you have the opportunity now to evaluate as things are going on. I want to let you maybe drive home this point that you just made because it was incredible, but you were talking about Pete chipping and charging and he went over four, but there was maybe this extra benefit other than just the win loss of those points is that he got some doubles later, or maybe the guy took some pace off his first serve. So he wouldn't have to hit a second serve. And, you know, maybe an example of that for an amateur would be they poach in doubles and it doesn't work out. But later in the match, someone thinks you actually might do something up there and they miss a return. Is it safe to say that if you're making those correct plays, yes, you can maybe win more points overall, but there's also this like delayed effect later in the match that you need to be aware of? A hundred percent. And that's why play, players have a hard time. Taylor has a really hard time with it because he's a perfectionist. He hates to miss one ball. He hates to miss one shot an entire match. So if I'm if Michael Russell and I are saying Taylor, his second serve's not great. The first few games, every second serve you get crush. Just up the middle, but just crush it. Show him the weight of your forehand. Show him if he misses one or two of those, it's really hard for him to understand that at four all, he's gonna get a double fault or a weak serve. At five five, it's really hard in that moment when you've missed those balls to be able to grasp what it might mean later on in the set. It's a very difficult qualitative um, evaluation that you're making. You have to have trust in the, in the philosophy and it a hundred percent, I live by it. And so if he misses balls the right way, I don't care at all. I, I'd rather see Taylor miss a serve this far wide than to hit it a foot and a half in. Because if he hits it a foot and a half away from his target, I don't care how big it is in today's game, it's coming back. But if he just misses it wide, that's a great serve. 
and it's you're going to hit the line because you're a great server. It's gonna you're going to narrow those margins. But if you're fearful of missing, you're not helping yourself out. So all the qualitative evaluations are really difficult, but they're really important at the club level too. This person wanted to know all these great players you mentioned: Sloan, Tim, Roger, Pete, Taylor. How those players have handled failures or sustained slumps? You know, all their personalities are different. I, I think Sloane's been the hardest because she's such an awesome, great, talented athlete. And when she was really young, she may have been a teenager. She may have been 19 or 19, I think, when she got to the semis in Australia and lost to Serena. But there was a ton of expectation that was thrown at her. And I think she's you know, wrestled with perceived expectation and perceived consequences of expectation internally and externally. So I, I think that that is hard for her. I think she's done so many great things and she's showed really a tremendous example of how to wrestle with that when she won the U.S. Open in 2017. She's an unbelievable human being and a great athlete, but I think early onset expectation troubled her a little bit. And I think she's learned to deal with it better. Um, I, I think ultimately people all time greats like Sampras and Federer are of a different cloth. They are the rule, not the, ex I'm sorry, they're the exception, not the rule. And it's tough to, you know, the one thing that I would say is that again, they have that macro perspective like I told you about with Roger losing close matches, they understand stuff happens and, and it's really disappointing and frustrating at the moment. And, <clears throat> but the next moment's about to come. And that's one of the greatest things about tennis is that every week you have another chance to prove yourself. I mean, these pro players play 22 to 30 tournaments a year and you have a handful of garbage and you have a handful of great matches. And then the rest is what makes you up. And again, if you have that macro perspective, then you're going to able to maximize those average matches, whether you're a great player or you're just an average player at your club, it's that same methodology. If you're able to grasp that and understand, okay, I'm not playing great today. What can I do to problem solve anyway, instead of I'm not playing, I stink. My forehand's horrible. I can't believe how bad I am today. What's wrong with me? I've spent $6,000 on lessons this summer. I'm going to go fire my pro. And all of a sudden you start venting and you go into the nether world about what you can't do. That's a huge problem. But the great players get the emotion. They have the emotion. They just flush it out. And then they find out how to manage it. That, that to me, is the biggest difference between great and good, is the ability to raise your average level. That's the difference. Great and good, your average level is higher when you're great, and it's led by your emotional capacity. That's what I think. What is the best coaching advice you've ever received or been exposed to? The best coaching advice I ever received was from my brother who coached me for 99% of my professional career. <clears throat> and when I started doing really well, I got to be, I don't know, top 15 in the world. And I used to just come to net on everything. And then all of a sudden I'm top 15 in the world and I'm one of the top Americans. And then a lot of people are giving me advice. 
and a lot of great people, prominent former players that I had a lot of respect for that are really smart people and good coaches and giving me advice like stay back at the baseline. You got to get your ground strokes better. You know, you're doing great coming forward, but you really need to shore up your ground strokes and you need to really get better there. And so I took that to heart and I spent a lot of time doing that. And about tw- about 18 months later, I was ranked 33 in the world and I was really depressed and I'd worked unbelievably hard. There was a number of reasons for that ranking, but the, some of it was that, in fact, I was working on my ground strokes. And so I asked my brother about it and, and he was so humble and so open to let other people help me. I said, Steve, what's the deal? We've been working so hard and we've been doing, and he goes, well, he said, you look much better losing now. And I said, what do you mean? He said, yeah, you hit the ball pretty well from the back of the court. Now you look much better losing. And I said, yeah, but what do you mean? He said, your biggest strength is you're great at the net. You're great at the net. There's very few people that are as good at you at the net. There's a couple hundred that are as good as you from the back of the court. Why would you not just get to the net whenever you can and say, beat me there? So yeah, your ground strokes are much better now and you look much better losing. So that was kind of what he said to me. And, and it made a ton. And he's right. I looked a lot better losing. <laughs> so funny. And last question, as always, on the podcast. But what is your best advice for the 4-0 player? Best advice for a 4-0 player is just really self-awareness of what your game style is, what your strengths are, and understand how you're going to use your strengths as often as you can to finish the point one way or another with your strength. Do what you do well, and if you win or lose, doesn't matter because you're doing what you do well. And don't kind of spend an, a huge amount of time trying to shore up your weaknesses like I just talked about. Get them solid, absolutely. Don't not work on your weaknesses at all, but don't bring that to the forefront of what you're trying to do. Identify who you are as a player, how you want to finish points and structure your game style and all your strategy. So that's how you finish the majority of your points. I know the people listening will have loved this episode. You have a new book out and a website. Can you let people know kind of where they can find you there? Sure. It's uh, paulanacone.com and, and the book's actually, it's a little bit old, just like me. It's a, it's a few years old, but um, it's called coaching for life. And really, it's using tennis as a metaphor for life. And all the stuff we're talking about, these stories from Pete and Roger and Tim and Sloan, Taylor, I wasn't coaching Taylor yet. So all those stories are in there anecdotally to help give people a good example of why these players are great players. And it's a lot more between here than people think. And if you can manage that stuff, I feel like you can be successful whether you're on the court or off. I can't thank you enough for the time. I knew this would be an incredible 40 minutes for me. I learned a ton. I hope people out there did as well. Good luck to Taylor at the Open and uh, looking forward to watching you on Tennis Channel. Appreciate so much. Thanks for the patience. All right. I want to thank Paul for coming on the show. I always have to listen back to each episode a few times in the editing process. And each time I listen to this one, I added a new note about something new that I had learned. Paul has so much knowledge and experience, and I'm so grateful he agreed to come on the show. My favorite idea that he mentioned was swinging aggressively to conservative targets. I am all about reducing errors and learning how to be more consistent, but a lot of people hear that and get tentative on their shots and become scared to miss. 
So next time out, give yourself a ton of margin, but remember to swing aggressively and confidently to your big target. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram at Stokey Tennis for clips from these podcasts, as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved at tennis without even hitting a ball.